last night and I said, we'll have a double bourbon. And they said, we can't give you a double, just a single. Regulations. I thought, is this bloody Australian? <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully today they obliged. Um, really great to be with you uh, for the last talk in Melbourne. Super pumped. Thank you so much for coming out. I hope you have a great night. Um, I plan on speaking for about 45, 50 minutes. We'll have a break, have a brewski, and then we'll do some Q&A. Um, in tonight's talk, we're going to talk about how to win an argument without losing a soul. So maybe up until this point you've been pretty good at winning arguments, but you're a jerk about it. <laughs> Try and fix that. Uh, maybe you're just terrible at winning arguments, but you're super polite. <laughs> or maybe you're bad and a jerk. So that would be the worst case, I suppose. Uh, but tonight we're going to try and remedy that as well. In order to do that, we're going to have to do a few things. We're going to have to talk about what an argument is, what an argument isn't. We're going to look at uh, what makes for a valid argument. I want to look at the top ten fallacies that I see being committed online and elsewhere. And then I want to finish by suggesting five tips for constructive discourse, since the whole point of this isn't just to win an argument, but to help somebody. So if you're a you know, Christian today, this will hopefully help you argue with non-Christians. If you're not a Christian, this will help you argue with Christians. You know, if you're a um, epistemological relativist, well, you don't believe in objective truth, so this will be a big waste of time. Okay? Um, but either way, we're going to have some fun. A couple of years into our marriage, my wife and I were living in San Diego, California. And I remember one morning, our children waking up, as they tend to do, at an ungodly hour, and bursting into our room, all excited, as if they'd been drinking espresso. And we said, uh, go away. <laughs> <laughs> Judge me until you're a parent. Um, I said, oh, maybe stay outside and play for a bit, you know? And they stayed outside, and they started to argue and bicker, and then they came back in, and... I remember my wife, she said, uh, my wife over here, she said, uh, we'll stay outside, we'll, uh, whoever stays out the longest wins. <laughs> so they went out, and they came, one of them popped their head back in and said, what do we win? Right? What do we win? And you said, candy. And I said, bloody candy. <laughs> I want to sleep as well, but it's six in the morning. And she went, no, they're vitamins. They bubble on their tongue. They don't know the difference. <laughs> so, all right, good, get, get candy. So out they went, and they started to play. Uh, but within a short amount of time, they began to bicker. You know, did too, did not, did too, did not. It's enough to make you want to scratch your eyes out. But the point I, I'm bringing up is it would seem that many people in our society today think that an argument is something like that, where two people just take up contrary positions and yell at each other without progressing. If you were to go to Google right now, type in arguments and click images, uh, what you wouldn't find is two people you know, having a, a productive discourse. What you would find is two people yelling at each other. Probably, I haven't looked it up, but I bet it's there. Red in the face, yelling at each other, grabbing each other by the shirt. But this isn't what an argument is, right? An argument isn't bickering, it's not fighting, it's not spitting the dummy. Sorry, I heard that phrase for the first time in like seven years. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I bloody love Australia. Spitting the dummy. Anyway. Um, you know, so, so what is an argument? Well, very simply, an argument means giving reasons to think something is true or thinking that it isn't. And it's unfortunate that I see in some Christian circles you'll hear Christians say, 
Well, we shouldn't argue with people. We should tell them our story. <laughs> it's, it's fine to tell your story, but if your friend has a brain, they might say, well, why should I think that's true? Or how do you know that's right, you know? And if you were to answer them coherently at that point, you have to give reasons to believe something. And if you begin doing that, well, then you'll begin to argue. Right. Now, let's do a little geek, some geeky stuff. I hope you're all a bunch of geeks, or else this is, yeah, we'll see. Um, in order for an argument, in order for a deductive argument to be a good argument, you have to have clear terms, true premises, and valid logic. This is like a cool philosophy course with beer. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so let's go through each of them. All right, first you need clear terms. Now, a term in logic means the same thing that it does in grammar. If I say snow is white, terms of snow and white, right? So in an argument, the terms need to be clear. Yeah, so if I said to you, um, let's see, uh, all feathers are light, that which is light is not dark, therefore no feathers are dark, that would be a bad argument because I'm equivocating on the word light. Incidentally, this is what most of our jokes are based on, right? Equivocation. Like if I, if I tell a joke to you, if I say this, sometimes, I bring my knees into my chest and and tilt forward. That's just how I roll. <laughs> the reason that might be funny is because I'm using the roll, word roll in two different senses. I need to give you another one. You didn't laugh hard enough. Okay, so there were, there were three older couples in an old folks home, right? Up. Let's see here. An American couple. <laughs> let's be careful. An Australian couple. And uh, let's pick on the Irish couple, right? And so uh, they were sitting at breakfast, and the American husband said that his wife passed me the sugar, sugar, you know, and so she passes him the sugar. And the Australian said, uh, let's see, pass me the honey, honey. I was trying to figure out how to do an accent, and I realized that I had it. I didn't it. <laughs> you know, and then, and, then, and then the Irishman said to his wife, pass me the tea bag. <laughs> Settle down. Right, so that's funny because we're equivocating on back. Right, so in order for an argument to be good, you have to have clear terms. Next, you have to have true premises, right? I mean, you can, a premise is just a step in the argument because you can prove anything with false premises. I love that we're talking about logic and premises and you're all interested. This is fantastic. I need some bourbon. Um, <laughs> You can prove, or quote-unquote, prove anything, you know, with false premises. If I said, you know, all leprechauns are uh, infallible, and I am a leprechaun, therefore I am infallible, that is actually a um, logically valid argument. That is to say, the conclusion follows from the premises. It just so happens that the premises are false. So obviously you need premises that are true, or more probably true than false, in order for the conclusion to follow. And then thirdly, you need valid logic. That is to say, the conclusion has to follow from the premises according to the laws of logic. So if I say, Australia is, no, Canberra is the capital of Australia, snow is white, therefore a beaver is a semi-aquatic broad-tailed rodent, Everything I just said was true, but the conclusion follows in no way from the premises. And so a good argument, the classic argument, would be something like this, right? All men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Uh, that conclusion follows inescapably from the premises. If the premises are more plausibly true than false, then you have to accept the conclusion. So let's look at ten common fallacies that I'm seeing more and more today, um, 
And the reason we're going to do this is so that we can detect them in our own lives when we commit them with friends, and so that we can detect them when others commit them when we're in a, uh, in a conversation. So, this is where it gets fun, right? Because we'll talk about a fallacy and look at some examples. So, the first fallacy to look at is the ad hominem fallacy. This is a Latin phrase which means against the man. And it's called that because uh, the fallacy is when you reject someone's conclusion because of who they are. Right? Not because of how they've argued for it, but just because of who they are. So if I say to you, you know, Jordan Peterson thinks capitalism is better than communism, and you say, well, he's a white supremacist, you'd A, be an idiot, because he's not, and B, it wouldn't matter even if he was, because that has no bearing upon whether his argument is sound or not. Does that make sense? So if you said to me, well, you're a Christian, but you, know, you don't have a degree in this or that, and so how would you know? The, the, the fallacy doesn't come in because you're trying to find good reasons to justify why I believe something. It's when you just dismiss someone out of hand because of who they are. You see this on YouTube all the time, right? Where people make fun of how somebody looks or what they're wearing or, or other things that they believe just to dismiss them out of hand. And I'm sure we've been guilty of that as well, so stop it. Um, second fallacy is the straw man fallacy. This is where we set up a, uh, an argument uh, that isn't actually what our opponent believes, or it's similar to it, but it's easier to knock down. So I remember seeing, here would be an example of a straw man fallacy. I saw a meme that said, uh, atheism, the belief that there was nothing, nothing exploded, and then there were dinosaurs. Like, that's funny, but it's clearly fallacious. Like, that isn't actually how an atheist would kind of describe his position. So we want to be careful, of course, not to strawman our opponent's argument. You know, the contrary to strawmanning is what's called steelmanning. And this is something that St. Thomas Aquinas does really well in his works, like the Summa Theologiae. He, he looks at his opponent's position, and then he formulates it as strongly as he can, and then he responds to it. And this is something we could learn from. When you're on Facebook and you see someone say something that seems rather silly, rather than just telling them that they're silly, you could say, what do you mean by that? And maybe explain that, and then you could even say it back to them. Is this your point? No. Well, is this it? Yes, that's it. You can formulate your opponent's argument better than, better than he can. You'll win his respect, and you'll be after truth, not just a, a quick point. And I would imagine how the Hillary and Trump debate would have went if instead of just these little one-liner jabs, you know, Trump had to actually articulate Hillary's position until it was acceptable. I mean, you actually had a substantive debate, but unfortunately that's not what we want. We just want a bloody car wreck to watch and drink to. So there we are. I guess that's what we've got. The third fallacy to talk about is something called self-referential incoherence. This is when somebody makes a statement or an argument, and the statement and argument uh, is actually incoherent when it's judged by the own, it, it itself. Uh, the classic example would be if I said, I don't speak a word of English. You know, like I do. Apparently I speak seven or eight if I was to make that statement. Another example of something that's self-referentially incoherent would be something like epistemological relativism, which I made fun of a moment ago. I remember running a retreat in Ireland, and um, after the retreat, I was standing with my mate, Charity, 
and a kid from the retreat came up to us and he said, it was a fun retreat, but I don't believe in God. I said, oh, okay, why? He said, because I don't believe in absolute truth. And my friend Charity, without missing a beat, said, are you absolutely sure about that? Like, is that absolutely true? <laughs> he nearly fell over, right? <laughs> because he knew that he couldn't say that it's absolutely true, that there are no absolute truths, or else his mind would explode. Um, another example of self-referentially incoherent arguments would be scientism, right? Which is the idea that you shouldn't accept something as true unless it can be shown true by the scientific method. Well, the scientific method is a fantastic method of investigation we've invented to discover truths about the natural world. It's great. But you notice that statement isn't one that can be proved by the scientific method. If I say you shouldn't accept something as true unless it can be shown true by the scientific method, um, that's a philosophical assumption, an axiom that I'm beginning with, that you never saw at the fifth grade science fair. And so it's self-referentially incoherent. Now, I think something else that might be self-referentially incoherent, and this might get me into some trouble, because I'm sure we have some wonderful evangelical brothers and sisters here tonight, but it might be something like this. You know, if you said to me that Christians ought not to accept anything, or, or don't need to accept anything, unless it is taught explicitly by, by Scripture, I'd say that might also fall into this category, since Scripture doesn't teach that we should only accept those things which are taught explicitly. Um... Number five, how are you doing? Is this too much, too big? Have a drink and you'll be, you'll be right. Okay? <laughs> Number five is the genetic fallacy. Right? This is really important. Okay? Um, the genetic fallacy attempts to um, uh, refute a belief or a conclusion because of how it originates. Right? So if you say to me, you know, well, you, of course you believe in God. You're afraid of reality. You like the idea of there being a cosmic sugar daddy, right, up in the clouds, who will give you a theme park when you're dead, you know? <laughs> well, maybe that's true. It's not. But even if it were the case, it wouldn't follow that God doesn't exist. It would just follow that I don't have any good reasons to, to, to believe in him. All right, it can cut both ways. If I said, well, if you're raised in Melbourne, you're more likely to be an atheist, that might be bloody true, but it doesn't show that atheism's false. Maybe atheism's still true, and you don't have any good reasons to be one. I remember my son came into the kitchen one night, I was preparing dinner, and I was just cutting carrots or something, he said, Dad, said, what? He said, you know, you can fit about a million Earths into the sun. I said, no. <laughs> I didn't know that, chopping carrots, yeah. Um, he said, well, it's true. I said, well, how do you know it's true? He said, because I saw it on a cartoon, you know? <laughs> now, don't laugh too hard, because if that laugh was meant to indicate that it ought not to be taken seriously, that would be to commit the genetic fallacy, right? It originated on a cartoon, you can't really take that seriously, therefore. Turns out what he was watching was an episode of The Magic School Bus, uh, which is a science show for kids. And I did a bit of research, by which I mean I googled it, and it turns out that he was bloody right. Okay, so there you are. Um, the next would be something like um, an appeal to shame, hey? An appeal to shame. Um, now, there's a lot of different ways this could go. I can imagine somebody saying something like, 
well, you, you, don't, you don't believe in abortion, right? You don't think that's a moral thing. And I'd say, no, I don't think big, strong people should kill little, weak, innocent people. That is my position, you know? You might say, I think that's bloody atrocious because you think of all the women out there who have had, uh, who have, who have gone for a rape or have, you know, might have a child with severe deformities or things like that. Um, this is kind of trying to shame me into accepting a position. And while those things might need to be answered, do need to be answered and dealt with respectfully, just to sort of say to somebody, well, it's pretty bloody shameful that you believe that, uh, isn't enough. You actually have to show me why I'm wrong, not why you think what I believe is shameful. Um, another fallacy I think we often confront, especially as Catholics, but maybe that's because I am a Catholic. If you're not a Catholic, maybe you could think of something that we bloody Catholics do to annoy you, right? Is, is sometimes what's called colloquially the shotgun fallacy. Now, you don't have guns in Australia, so let me teach you something, right? Um, I don't know, maybe you do, but, you know, shot, yeah, shotguns don't have bullets, they have shells, those shells are filled with BBs, right? And so the cool thing about a shotgun is that it has a wider blast range because it shoots a bunch of BBs out. So the reason this is called a, a, a fallacy is it's kind of like when somebody brings up too many objections all at once that you cannot possibly respond to, you know? And so as a Catholic, you know, you've met these awesome evangelicals who love Scripture, love Jesus Christ, and are genuinely trying to figure out the weirdness that is Catholicism, right? And they're like, where's the Pope in the Bible? And why do you believe in purgatory? That's super weird. And why do you worship Mary? And you're like, yeah. And then I've got like 10 minutes or five minutes. Um, and of course, the same can happen. Uh, we can do the same thing. Um, it's it's called a fallacy because I think it's not really helpful. It's not so much a mistaken reasoning as it is like a, a cheeky tactic. Um, another fallacy would be called the red herring fallacy. A red herring is a, is a fish. And I guess what they used to do is they would, they would train bloodhounds to not go off the scent of their quarry. And one of the ways they would test them is by dragging a chain filled with these old fish, old stinky fish, across the trail. And they wanted to see if they could take the bloodhound off the quarry and onto the scent, right? And you can see why this is a good name for a fallacy. Because sometimes you might be arguing about a particular point, and your opponent may raise a completely irrelevant objection to the point at hand. So, here's, a, here's my favourite example of that. When we were living in San Diego, I remember saying to my wife, I'm going to just go take a quick nap. So I did. It's not very exciting, it's just what happened, you know, and I uh, went and laid down and I was there maybe a couple of minutes and, and she knocked on the door and she went, honey, sorry to wake you up, but there's guys with Bibles at the door. And she knows how excited I get when that happens. So, <laughs> Christmas has come, you know. And so I said, well, that's great, you know, and I, I, uh, I got up and, and we sat down and we, we, just, we began to discuss some things, you know, and really cool guys, uh, they were um, um, Jehovah's Witnesses. And um, one of the arguments I made for the Catholic Church was, um, you know, Jesus Christ established a church, and the only church which can trace its lineage unbroken to the time of Christ and the Apostles is the Catholic Church, and therefore Jesus Christ, is, you know, something like that, Jesus Christ established the Catholic Church. They said, well, how can you bloody believe that Catholicism is true in light of these bloody pedophile priests or something? This is both an appeal to shame um, and a red herring. Yeah, it's a red herring because it's like, well, uh, that's a different question. Because I actually made an argument. 
you haven't responded, you haven't showed me why one of the premises are wrong, why the conclusion didn't follow, you've just kind of thrown something out there, you know, and if you answer that, well, inquisition, you know, so, oh, yes. and, and so, I, I think, I'm not sure why that was funny, but you're welcome. Um, <laughs> I think what's important is if we're in a dialogue with somebody and they raise an objection that's irrelevant to the point, um, that you can say, all right, we can address that later. But can we stick to this topic right now? What do you think of what I just said? And it can be difficult to do that, especially when you think you can answer the, the sort of um, uh, red herring objection adequately. But uh, try and stick to stick to the point. Let's see, um, another one would be an appeal to emotion, right? Uh, so imagine, imagine a Christian sort of saying to, to someone who doesn't know if they believe in God. You know, they'd say, "How could I just can't live in a world that, that, that doesn't have any meaning, or I couldn't live in a world with, with, without believing in a, in a loving God, or how could you, how could you possibly live?" Uh, knowing that you'll never see your loved ones again. I don't bloody know, but if it's true, I'm going to have to figure it out. Like, just because I want there to be a God, you know, just because I, I would rather not live in a world where there was a loving God, it doesn't mean a loving God exists. This is, this is an appeal to emotion, so that doesn't work either. All right, a couple more. You know, um, one would be, uh, two more, one would be circular reasoning. And, you, and let's see how, how Catholics might do that, or Christians might do that, right? They might say, uh, someone might say, well, then why do you believe in God? And they say, well, because the Bible says so. And they say, and most Christians don't do that, I know, but maybe it's a straw man. <laughs> but anyway, um, so why do you believe in God? The Bible says so. Well, why do you take the Bible seriously? Because it's the Word of God. You know, you have to prove that. That's, you're kind of stuck in a vortex, you know? Um, an atheist might commit this if they were to say, uh, I don't believe in God. Why? Because if there was a God, we should expect to see miracles. Okay, but what about this miracle and that miracle and maybe this and maybe the resurrection? No, there's got to be a natural explanation. Why? Well, because God doesn't exist, so there has to be. Mm, yeah, not working again. Uh, finally, and, and, and this is something that all fallacies commit, it's called a non sequitur. Now, non sequitur is just Latin for it doesn't follow. And all, all fallacies are guilty of this because the conclusion doesn't follow. Um, but I think this is important for our purposes uh, for this reason, as, as Christians. Um, I remember being at a university in, in Minnesota, and after the talk, someone came up to me and they said, I don't, believe, um, I don't believe in God. And I said, why? And he said, because of all the... Look, you've read the Old Testament, haven't you? He said, look at all that atrocious stuff that you're, you know, this God did. Um, and I said, well, maybe the Bible's false. Uh, it doesn't disprove God, right? Just, and obviously, I don't think that. I, I think the Bible is inspired as a Christian. But if you say the Bible's false, that doesn't prove that God doesn't exist. It would just prove, it would just prove that this account of God isn't reliable. Does that make sense? It would be like if you said... Um, it would be like if you said, these people over here said they were abducted by aliens. I interviewed them and found that they were lying. Therefore, aliens don't exist. You'd be like, hey, about that doesn't follow at all. Maybe aliens exist and they're still liars, but it doesn't prove. And so I just want to kind of 
in this section of the fallacies, I want to close with something I think can be really important um, as Catholics, right? I like to think of Catholic apologetics as a three-story mansion. You've got the first floor, which we might think of as theistic apologetics. The second floor is Christian apologetics. And the third floor is Catholic apologetics, right? And so in our lovely little illustration, we might have people outside of the mansion. I suppose these would constitute agnostics or atheists, right? And it would seem that our job as Christians, when we're in an intellectual conversation with somebody about faith, is to guide them through this mansion. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of, ex of yelling out of the third window to people outside of the mansion, you know? It's like, it, it, I remember my friend Patrick Coffin at Catholic Answers was in an email debate with Richard Dawkins, and Richard Dawkins was asking him to prove, trans prove transubstantiation. But that, like, it's trying to explain trans the doctrine of transubstantiation to someone who doesn't believe in God is like explaining advanced algebra to someone who denies basic arithmetic. <laughs> You know, I think what would be more appropriate is to sort of come down and say, well, do we think we have good reason to think God exists? And if we don't, well, we can't go any further. But if we do, then we can go to the second floor and say, well, who was Jesus Christ? Right? He claimed to be God. Do we have any good reason to think that's true? And if we don't, well, then we're back on the first floor. But if we do, then we can maybe pro progress to the process of the third floor. And, and what do they say about his church? And what does the church claim about itself? Does that make sense? I think sometimes we Christians try to prove all things at once. When that's not uh, really how any of us function. I became a Christian when I was 17 years old at Well Youth Day in Rome. Who was there? No one. Good. Just Father and me. Good. Right. You know, and if somebody had a said to me, right, in order to be a Christian, you've also got to bloody believe that the Bible's inspired, the Pope's infallible, and you can't have sex till marriage. I'd be like, no way. <laughs> Not going to happen. Um, but I think it's okay just to sort of say, well, you know, what about God? Do you think God exists? And you say, well, I can't believe in Mary. Well, just, we can get there, but like one step at a time. I think that can be really helpful. Okay. Everyone take a drink. Up your bum. It's got to be inappropriate, isn't it? I, um, I don't mean to be inappropriate. I just grew up in a country family in Australia, and I find myself saying things all the time. And Americans are like, no. And so I say, ah, oh, in Australia, you're allowed to say that. Just lie to them, you know? So, um, look, here's what we're going to do. Let's just take a look at five uh, tips for a constructive discourse. And if you're here tonight and you're, you're not Catholic, obviously all of this kind of applies to you as much as it applies to any of us. And I think you'll recognize that none of these things, none of these five tips, are occurring on Twitter. <laughs> which is why I'm not on this anymore. Alright, so I think the first thing that we have to do is listen. No, really, listen. To listen to another person. Now, there's two dead giveaways that I can think of when people aren't really listening to you, but want you to think that they are. And I know this because I've done it too. Uh, uh, one way is when you know, you're talking about something, and they look down at their watch, and then you look at them, and they know they've been caught. And so they compensate with 
<laughs> he compensates with like dramatic head nods at that point. <laughs> you know, and just intense eye contact, you're like, you bastard. You know? <laughs> and the second way, you know, I think, you know, we, uh, people pretend to listen, and, and this is just, I've never heard anyone talk about this, I wonder if you've experienced this. You get into a chat with someone, you know, and you're saying something you're pretty pumped up about, but they are making affirming noises at the wrong times. <laughs> and you, know, you might just be building up to your point, and like, mm-hmm, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you dirty dog, you know? <laughs> So I think it's really important that we do genuinely listen because often when we have these sort of arguments about faith uh, or politics or something that's important to us, we already have our mind made up, at least to some degree, and we come to the conversation in a defensive mode. And very often what we're doing, aren't we, is while they're speaking, we're thinking about how we're going to respond. And I do it, and you do it, but I don't think it's helpful. I think we should really give that person the benefit of the doubt and to treat their ideas with the respect we would want them to treat ours with by genuinely trying to listen and understand where we're coming from. People don't often believe that, right? People don't believe, I think this is true. People don't hold to opinions that they know are in direct defiance of the truth. Rather, they have reasons to believe what they do. And while you might not be able to agree with their conclusions, you might be able to sympathize with the reasons they have for that particular thing. So you can meet them halfway. I agree with that, I see what you mean there, but I'm not sure how you make that leap, that sort of thing. Now I think one of the reasons you and I don't listen in arguments is that we don't have the attention span. Uh, and this is why I think smoking is good for you. Um, I mean, it'll, it'll kill you, right? But there's something lovely about sitting down with a friend over a cigar. You know, you're like, all right, we've got an hour here, let's go, you know? I love smoking a cigar because I know my wife can't ask me to do anything. Come inside, well, I would. Do you want me to bring this in? No, okay, well, I'll sit down here. Um, sitting down over a bottle of whiskey with a friend and just having a beautiful, lovely, thought-out conversation, taking the time to really investigate another person's ideas. So that would be the first thing, to listen, um, really listen. The second thing I think we should do is ask questions. Why? In order to clarify what the person means. Because sometimes we're using terms and we think we know what the other person means, but we don't. Because we think that term means something else. A classic example of this is, you know, when Protestants might say, or evangelicals, whatever uh, they might call themselves, but they might say, well, you worship Mary, and you say, never has been true, not true now, and never will be. And they say, but you say, you pray to her. But yes, well, we do pray to her. But you see, for the evangelical, very often, prayer is synonymous with worship. And so that's an obvious misunderstanding. But when we use the word pray, we're using it in the sort of Shakespearean sense. And actually, if you read Shakespeare, you'll see things like the contraction of I pray thee, you know, privy, close the door, privy, have another drink, you know. <laughs> so when we say we're praying, you know, we're asking someone at Mary's intercession, say, remember another example of this, I was chatting with the evangelical, wonderful polygon, and we were talking about purgatory. 
You said purgatory sounds, it just, it sounds so unbiblical and, and so made up. How can you possibly hold to it? And I said, well, what do you think we mean by purgatory? And he gave this sort of understanding. Now, that's not really what we mean. Why don't we forget about the name for a second? Why don't we forget about the term purgatory? And I said to him, do you think, so this would come to asking questions, right? Do you think that everyone in heaven uh, will be free from sin? That is to say, they won't be sinning and they won't be attached to sin. Yes, he says, because nothing unclean shall enter heaven. Right. But don't you think that many people who will be in heaven are still sinning and are attached to sin at the end of this life? Yes. Okay, so what happens if you're sinning and are attached to sin at the end of this life, and then you're in heaven and you're not sinning, you're not attached? Like, what, what happened in that interim that made you not attached and, and not able to sin? Something. And that's really what kind of Catholics mean by purgatory. In fact, Pope Benedict, uh, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, speculated that purgatory may take no temporal duration whatever, because we're not sure how time works in the afterlife. He said it might simply be the encountering of the God of love that strips away our impurities and attachments to lesser goods. So that might be an example of trying to get to some agreement through asking questions. Number three would be prudent evangelization. Um, we've all had people in our lives, even if they've come to the door or have stopped us on a street corner, and they've wanted to convert us, so they've, they've wanted to kind of win us over to their side, but we never got the sense that we meaned much to them. And maybe we felt like a project to them. Um, and that's not good. And I think very often we're not at all interested in, in that kind of dialogue. So when I say prudent evangelization, I mean uh, we ought to let the virtue of prudence, which just means, what, that virtue which enables us to act in accord with right reason, right? Prudence ought to dictate how and when we evangelize, right? So you might be having dinner over the Christmas meal with the in-laws who've just left the faith, you know, that's something. Now's probably not a bloody good time, you know? Could you pass me the gravy? And also, what do you think about, you know, this could be not only unhelpful, right? Not only... Uh, unproductive, but counterproductive, right? And in those times, you might decide that, okay, now's not the time. You might feel heroic, look at me, bring up the hard conversation with somebody. But again, if it's just going to turn them off, then it's probably a good idea not to do it. Uh, so I think praying for opportunities to evangelize and to whatever we do to speak with love and to take a holistic interest in this person's life. I have made the mistake after my conversion on fire as I was for the Lord to uh, only be interested in how this person's failing. You know, how they're living with their girlfriend and, and how they need to know about chastity, how they're not going to church and why they ought to. Um, but as I say, that's quite a turn off. If you feel like a project, you very quickly cease to be interested in this, in this person's uh, uh, preaching, you know? Uh, one more thing on prudential evangelization. I decided a long time ago that I would never expect anybody to change their mind in front of me. There's just too much going on, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about that more in number five. Okay, so four, the fourth thing. It's okay not to know something. Now, you'll all nod sagely when I tell you that. Toast, you know. But you don't believe that, you know. You're humiliated when somebody asks you a question. You've got no friggin' idea. You know, how to answer it. You know, it's, it can be embarrassing. And the, the temptation 
is to sort of fluff it or to like talk in circles and hope something makes sense or just to keep talking until they're like, righto, shut up, let's get a beer or something, you know. Um, we shouldn't do that. Uh, we should be humble and say, that's a great question. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I actually don't know. But would it be okay if I looked into it and got back to you? I remember a man in Ireland did this to me. He was a lovely chap. He worked at a Christian bookshop in Donegal, where we used to live. And I remember we were talking about whether or not a Christian could lose his salvation. And I said a Christian could, and he said he couldn't. And I pointed to a couple of different scripture verses that seemed to uh, say pretty clearly that we can. And I never forget this. He looked at me and he went, that's a great point. I've never thought of that before. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> um, he said, do you mind if I spend some time in the Word and got back to you? And I went, yeah, all right, yeah, sure. No worries. And uh, I just, and then we got back in touch, and he had reasons for why I was wrong. But I thought that it was really admirable that this bloke wasn't out to win an argument, but to know and to follow the truth. And that's never left me. And so maybe later on tonight we'll do some Q&A, and we'll see how willing I am to admit that I have no bloody idea how to answer your question, maybe. Okay, I think the final point to bring up before we wrap up tonight is that you cannot change someone's mind. You can't. You can uh, bring up reasons to believe something and that can help, but only you can change your mind and only a person you're interacting with can change his mind. As Christians, I imagine that we, we have to say that it's the Holy Spirit that leads one to faith, and while we might be instruments in that, um, it's really not us. And so... There's a sense of um, detachment, I think, that ought to be there in a conversation, you know? Sometimes people say, well, what can I do now? What can I do now? I'm like, that's yeah, just calm down a little, maybe, you know? Like, it's all right. Just love this person like you would want them to love you, you know? Here's a great quote from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 5. Uh, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. And so again, I think it's important when dialoguing with someone just to be gentle and to pray, especially in that Christian context, and to recognize that we can't change another person's mind. Here's a great analogy I want to end with. I learned it from a friend of mine, his name's Dr. Randall Rouser, he's a theologian in Canada. He used this great analogy about the deep-seated beliefs we all have and the more trivial beliefs that we have and how difficult it might be to change one or the other, okay? So suppose I'm sitting on the couch one night, uh, just reading a book, and my wife says to me, would you mind getting the vacuum cleaner? You know? And I say, where is it? And she says, it's in the attic, you know. And suppose I know that it's at the front of the attic. So all I have to do, you don't have attics, do you in Australia? You just got to pull the bloody thing down and there it is. I might say, sure, I'll get, the, I'll get the vacuum cleaner. But suppose I know that the vacuum cleaner is stuffed all the way in the back behind boxes full of Christmas decorations and old baby clothes, you know. I might be like, oh, come on, do I have to do that? Can we buy another one or something? Can, I, can we ask the next door neighbor, you know? But 
The first instance represents those trivial beliefs we might hold, right? So uh, if an American were to think, as many do, that Sydney is the capital of Australia, and I went, no, it's Canberra, they probably won't put up too much of a fight. They're like, oh, all right, Canberra, sweet. But suppose they believe something different, you know? Suppose they believe that, I don't know, that, um, something maybe about abortion, you know, that abortion was something that, that people should be allowed to, to engage in and that this is a, an acceptable thing. And I was like, well, no, it's not, here's why. Uh, you're like, well, God, everything has to change. I have to move so much else around in my belief system to be able to get to that. I'm not sure if I want to. And the same holds true with Catholics, right? I mean, if you could give me an argument for why abortion was acceptable, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's really compelling. I've never thought about that before. How likely would I be? You're like, cool, done. Very unlikely. Because, you know, I have to change a whole lot of things around in my sort of uh, epistemological bank. Um, and we're very unwilling to do that a lot of the time. And so that reason I think, as we engage with each other, we ought to do it with gentleness and clarity. Maybe we'll close with that verse from 1 Peter, where is it? Chapter 3, was it, I think? He says, the evangelicals can tell me. He says, um, all, uh, 15 maybe, or 20, I forget. Always be ready, no. He says, in your hearts, reverence Christ as Lord. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. That's right. First Peter 3 10. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Those are three things we can all take away from this talk. Right? The first thing, in your hearts, reverence Christ as Lord. If we wish to lead another person to Jesus Christ, we need to be holy. We need to be rooting out the sin in our life with no more earnestness, right? With as much earnestness as if we had cancer. And to stop pussyfooting around with those sins that we've put up with or made excuses for up until this point in our life. We have to begin following the Lord with our whole hearts and minds. In the second thing he says, yeah, be ready to give a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that's in you. So we ought to study the faith. I mean, we ought to be able to say, well, why do I believe in God? You know, the first Vatican Council defines that we can know God exists wholly apart from faith. Thomas Aquinas went so far as to say it's not even a matter of faith to know that God exists. This is something philosophy can bring about, right? And then other things about Protestant objections and secular objections back to Christian teachings. We should know that, right? And then the final thing, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. So as we're engaging with, with somebody, to be able to do that gently and reverently, because it's a beautiful thing uh, to seek the truth together. God bless and thanks so much.